Oh, welcome. We're glad you guys are here. We're start kicking off a new series today and excited about that. But I was, uh, before we get to that, I was thinking this week about uh, uh, a day when Tina and I got married. We just had our anniversary a couple weeks ago, celebrated 21 years of marriage. Yes, yes, yes. We were... 10 years old when we got married or so, I don't know, but, uh, but pretty cool thing. But I was thinking back on, on that day and just uh, remembering what it was like, right? I mean, a couple of young whippersnappers that uh, walked into a church, stood up before their family and friends and, in, and with a pastor in front of us, and we made some promises to one another. We put a ring uh, on each other's finger, and uh, we celebrated with family and friends, and we left from that place with a new identity. We left from them from that place as husband and wife and I was I was just remembering back and thinking at that moment I had no idea what that meant right I mean you kind of go through some premarital counseling you're like oh yeah husband we're gonna you know love my wife and all that kind of stuff and I have to say it's one of those things that you step out of there and you don't necessarily function like a, a seasoned husband I mean you've been a husband for like what 10 10 minutes or something and you don't necessarily know what that means or what that looks like you may not feel any differently it takes days and weeks and months and years, and let's be honest, decades to try and figure out the fullness of what it means to, to, to live in that kind of relationship, to be our own family under God, to, 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 uh, to love and to build up and to serve my wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, like that kind of stuff, right? Like it's, it's something that we learn more and more and more day by day. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now you really think I was 10 years old when I got married. <laughs> but right, it's, it's, it's one of those kind of things of like my identity had fundamentally shifted in, and I was a husband, even though I, it took me quite a while to try and figure out what in the world that means and what it looks like. I remember, uh, fast forward uh, several years later, uh, we had our first child. We had Lizzie, our, our eldest, and I can remember we're in the hospital, we're packing her up. I mean, it's one of those things, she was a tiny little thing, and you put her in the car seat. You guys remember this, those of you that are parents, and they look so little. You put them in the, I mean, it's just a little baby seat, and they look so little in there, and you're looking at her, and the, the nurses are having to sign some paperwork or whatever else, and the time comes where they're like, okay, you know, like, you're going, and, we're, and Tina and I look at each other like, they, if they knew how incompetent we were, they would not be sending this child home with us. Our identities had fundamentally shifted. We were now parents. And now I have to say those first uh, hours and days and weeks, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. I can, I, can <laughs> I should not be telling this, but <laughs> I, I can remember, I mean, I, we'd never really done diapers that much before, especially on little ones and they don't really have hips or anything. <laughs> and so you're, you're kind of, I can remember we diapered her, we came in, Lizzie did not sleep. I've mentioned this before. So she was up in the middle of the night crying and that kind of stuff. And we went in and I, I picked her up and I looked at her and her diaper had kind of like slid down and I'm like, oh, she's got plumber's butt. <laughs> like, like, my poor thing. So, I mean, we didn't know what we were doing, right? I mean, kind of thing. But you, so it's one of those things you grow into. And actually, about the time you start feeling a little bit competent in one stage, they get older and open up a whole new stage. And you're like, I still don't know what I'm doing. It's take, even with Lizzie going off to college, it's a new era for us. We feel like we're still trying to figure out how to live in this identity as dad and as mom. And, and sometimes you have some models or some pictures in your head of what that looks like. Some of us, uh, 
didn't come from great examples, and so we feel, we feel like we have to figure these things out all on our own. But sometimes uh, the reality of who we are doesn't really, really line up with what we feel or maybe the skill set that we have or whatever else. Sometimes it's just different. I suppose it's a little bit like uh, a young, maybe an 18-year-old uh, young man or young woman that goes down to an army recruiter's office, right? And they sign some paperwork, and they walk out of there a soldier, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a soldier. I'm a, in the army. Or I'm in the Navy. Or I'm in the Marines or whatever. Now, they haven't been through boot camp. They don't look any different at that point, right? They don't feel like it. They may not be wearing the uniform, but their identity has fundamentally shifted. They are now, right, a soldier. Now, I have to say that their process of figuring out what that looks like might not take as long as marriage or parenting because boot camp has a way of helping that process along, right? All right, recruit, right, drop and give me 50, you know, kind of thing. But it's, it's one of those things that sometimes the externals don't match the internals. Well, why am I sharing all this with you? Well, today we're launching a brand new series on identity called Who Do You Think You Are? And, uh, and, and kind of what's behind that is that uh, if you and I have opened up our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, if we, have, if we have said, you know, God, I need you, would you come and save me, would you come and lead me, would you come and guide me, then according to the Bible, according to the lips of Jesus even, our identity has fundamentally shifted. It has changed in a bunch of different ways, and we may not feel like that, that new identity fits us. We might not know what it means fully. We might not even be living it out in, the, in, in all the, its fullness in our our lives, but it's true. In fact, God would say it's the truest thing about you, right? I mean, your identity has shifted. It has been differently. And so we are going to take six weeks or so and kind of take a piece uh, take a piece of our identity each week and take a look at it and, and kind of zero in and say, what does that mean for our lives? Again, there will be different ones that you'll be like, this doesn't feel like it's true at all. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's one coming up that will be uh, fairly jaw-dropping to you that you'll be like, um, no, <laughs> like, I don't think so. But there's some of these that will be, uh, some of these that we'll, we, we uh, will embrace a little bit more easily, some that will be a little bit more resistant to, but, and yet it's true. Whether we feel it or not, whether we've leaned into it and developed in those kinds of ways or not, it is true. And so we're going to zero in, we're going to lean in, and, uh, and I'm excited to see what God's going to do on this journey together. I want to start out this series um, by talking about one of the most fundamental pieces of our identity, and it's this. It's that you and I are, if, again, if we are followers of Jesus, you are a worshiper. It's your primary identity. In fact, the Bible would go as far as to say it's the purpose of uh, it's the purpose of why you and I have been created to worship and to know and to respond to God in ways that bring Him honor and glory and pleasure. And so we're going to kind of zero in on that piece today. And I was uh, I was not actually planning on on sharing and preaching on this passage, but there was one passage that I just kind of kept coming back to. And I'm like, at some point, you're like, okay, I think it's God. So so uh, I want us to look at this. It's from Luke chapter. 17. It's an interaction that Jesus has with uh, 10 guys who have a disease known as leprosy. And so we're going to jump into that, and I want us to learn some lessons from there, and then I'll jump around for a few other places too. Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 11, says this. It says, Now Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, 
when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Is no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. All right. Now, to be able to fully appreciate this story, uh, we kind of need to understand a little bit about leprosy. So let me give you a little bit of a a snapshot. Leprosy in Jesus' day would have begun with sort of a general sense of fatigue and pain in the joints, to which some of us in the room might be like, oh my gosh, I think I have leprosy, (laughs) right? Like, no, you you probably don't. There's there's more. Uh, but, But that's how it would begin. Eventually, people would begin to get patches of skin or nodules on their skin that would grow and swell together, and these lumps would eventually make these people unrecognizable. It would grow up and swell their face and contort their face and parts of their body so that they, even their own family oftentimes couldn't recognize them. Where they swelled up, there would become open source and there would be a foul stench that would come from them. They'd eventually lose their eyebrows and uh, their voices would get real hoarse because their vocal cords would ulcerate. Their voices would rasp, their breathing would eventually wheeze. And maybe the most dangerous part of the deal is they would lose sensation uh, in, their, in their extremities, in their fingers, toes, arms, legs, that kind of thing. One of the most dangerous parts of leprosy. I read uh, an article by Paul Brandt, who worked with lepers in the 20th century, wrote about being in a leper colony, and he had all kinds of stories, some of which are graphic, and I won't share with you. This one was, was interesting, though. He said he, he could remember there was a gate that they were trying to get into, and it had a, a rusty lock on the thing, and they were trying to, to get in. They needed to get through and couldn't... Uh, it was, a little while later, one, a kid came by who had leprosy, and he stuck his finger in the lock and started messing around, and finally it popped open. And when he pulled his finger out, it was, it was gnashed to the bone. The kid had no idea. He couldn't feel it. He couldn't feel the physical pain that was happening. But that's what happens uh, with when people have leprosy. Oftentimes, patients would lose fingers and toes. For a long time, people thought that it was from the disease of leprosy itself. It would be the reason that they would lose uh, you know, limbs and appendages and uh, fingers and toes. But it's not that. It's just that they, I don't know, they burn themselves or they get too close to a saw or a knife or whatever. They would lose stuff and not even know it. Well, eventually, uh, there would be a loss of mental functioning. People would fall into comas, and they would eventually die. In Jesus' day, when when you were diagnosed with leprosy, it was a death sentence for sure. Not just physically, but socially as well. Lepers couldn't go near people who didn't have leprosy. You couldn't be in town. If people saw you in town, they they would would be well within their rights to either egg you or stone you, sometimes to death, because it's contagious. They didn't want to get it. A house that had lepers in it was considered unclean. And anybody that came in contact with a leper was considered dirty. And so people stayed at a distance. In fact, lepers of that day had to stay 50 yards away from any other person. Imagine half a football field, and they had to yell out at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean, I'm unclean, stay away, stay back. Now, I mean, just think about what this would be like. So you're... you're, uh, you're married, you've got some kids, you love them, you're a part of this family, all of a sudden it becomes evident that you have leprosy. Not, I mean, of course there's the fact that it's a, it's a terminal disease that would be uh, horrible, but imagine you would be removed from your family, you would likely never hug your, your wife again, 
You'd never be able to get down on the floor and play with your kids again. You would have to move out of your house to the edge, to the, you know, way out the edge, past the edge of town. And you would be alone, separated from those you love. You'd be with other lepers, but you could, you'd never again be a part of your family. Can you imagine? It would be horrible. Now at that, I want you just to imagine to kind of come back into the story. Suddenly, you hear about this man named Jesus, right? You've heard that he heals people of diseases. And you start wondering and thinking to yourself, I wonder if he could heal me. I wonder, I wonder, could there be hope? I wonder what he could do. And so you and, and nine other guys from the, from the uh, leper colony go to the kind of the edge of town where you hear Jesus is, where he's going to be passing by, and you stand 50 yards away, and you start yelling at the top of your lungs, Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus, would you heal us? Jesus, would you come here, come close? Would you, would, you, would you do a miracle here? And remarkably, he does. He does. He says, go and show yourselves to the priest. A leper, uh, if, if they were cleansed, if they were ever healed, if they ever uh, w- would become clean, they'd have to be declared clean by a priest before they could resume their normal life and move back into town, move back in with their families. And so Jesus tells them, go and show yourself to the priest as if they had already been healed. And as each one of the lepers trusted what Jesus says and started, the, started moving towards and walking towards the priest, Jesus actually healed them. I mean, imagine the stench disappeared. Their faces, which had been totally distorted, were now, now coming back to normal. Their skin was likely smooth. It was a miracle. All of them must have felt it and, and seen the results. They probably started dancing and shouting, right? Hugging each other, celebrating. They, they get to the priest. They're declared clean for the first time. Tears of joy must have been running down their faces. I can go home, they start thinking. One probably said to another, my, my wife and my kids, suddenly they're, they're dreaming about, I could go home, I could hug them, I could be a part of a family again, a part of the community again. They had been an outcast just a few minutes before, and now a priest tells them that they are clean. You have your life back. You have your family back, your friends back, your church back. Everything has been given back to you. The nightmare is over, and hope has returned. At that moment, you truly know that Jesus, that God has had mercy on you, that he, he reached out and healed you. You realize that you've been given again this gift of life. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But Jesus looked at you. He saw you. He loved you. And he healed you. I mean, imagine how that would feel. Would that feel pretty good? (laughs) Imagine. Your heart would be so full, it would feel like it's going to explode. One by one, the, the ten former lepers start leaving the synagogue. They start leaving and one says, you know, he can't wait to go and see his daddy, right? He's like, maybe I can get one of those big bear hugs like he used to give. Another one starts thinking, man, I, I've missed three years of my kid's life. I, I cannot afford to miss one more second. And they might start taking off. Maybe a couple others say, hey, we're going to go out and party. We're going to go celebrate because our lives have been given back to us. Only one of them thinks to turn back to Jesus. Only one of them decides, you know what? i got to go back and say thank you. I've got to go back and worship. I've got to go back and thank and praise and celebrate with the one who saved me, the one who rescued me, the one who gave me new life. 
Only one. I have to say, uh, the, I just kept thinking this week, like, which one am I? Which one are you? Are we like the, are, what's our bias? Are we like the ones that are just too busy or too distracted or too in a hurry to get home to our, to our wife or our kids or our friends? Are we, are we too in a hurry to, 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 to go and celebrate and whatever else that we just don't take the minute just to turn back and in our hearts say, God, Jesus, I am so thankful. Thank you for being such a good God to me. Thank you for your saving work. Thank you for your, which one are you? I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, I think, man, far too often, it's easy just to go on with our days. Too, e- too often, we're like the nine lepers that never come back and say a simple thank you, that never come back and just worship and praise God for his work in our lives, for his healing, for the joy that has come back to us. He, he showers down his unconditional love and his forgiveness, right, that has cost him so greatly And so often, we don't even come back to say a simple thank you, God, for being so good to me. I ran across this uh, proclamation from Abraham Lincoln this week, written, what, 150 plus years ago, and he says this. He says, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray and thank, I might add, the God who made us. I read that and I think, man, I I think it's true. We've enjoyed the richest bounties of heaven, as Lincoln puts it. But for some reason, whether it be pride, whether it be self-absorption, whether we have a heart that just refuses to do it, or maybe just forgets to go back and worship and say thank you and praise the God who made us. So often we stop short of kneeling before the God who has given us back our lives and forgiven us for our sins, even died in our place. So often it's, it's easy to stop short of kneeling with thanksgiving and rejoicing in his good gifts. We're like those nine, those nine lepers who go on their merry way as though nothing had really happened out of the ordinary. But there's an alternative. One leper, a Samaritan, the Bible makes sure to point out. How did, how did the uh, Jews feel about the Samaritans? They didn't like them, right? They were considered second-class citizens, if that, right? They, uh, so a Samaritan leper had to be about as low on the totem pole as you could get. But this one leper, a Samaritan, turned back. He walks up to Jesus, and he bows down at his feet. He gives praise to God, to Jesus, for healing him. I just was thinking, I mean, I just was imagining this and picturing this in my mind. Probably as he's turning back, as he's running down the road towards Jesus, my hunch is that by, uh, because of practice, he probably stopped 50 yards out. <laughs> he probably stopped uh, a ways away. And then it dawned on him, wait, I don't have to stay at a distance anymore, but I am free to walk right up to Jesus. So he runs down the road. He falls at his feet, throws his arms around Jesus and gives him praise. Isn't that great? 
Jesus' response was not about him. He, he was the one out of ten that did it right. His, his response was, where are the other nine, right? Where were God's people, the Jews, right? The ones who should have gotten this, who should have understood that their role and their identity is that of worshipers. That they should have been the first ones to come back, the first ones to fall down at Jesus' feet, the first ones. And he's like, where are the other nine? Weren't they, weren't they healed too? The implied answer is, well, of course they were, right? Yeah. But they forgot. No one else came back to give praise to God. But it's unthinkable to Jesus because this is why we were created, to bring glory and praise to God. We are created to be worshipers. Listen to a few of these verses. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created. Talking about Jesus. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him. And what's that say? And for him. It's, we're created for him, for his good pleasure. If we really want to understand our identity, if we really want to get a handle on what life is really all about, then we've got to begin with more than just ourselves. The Bible teaches that we aren't just here for us, for our plans and our goals and our desires and our whims and our dreams, but we are here for a greater purpose. We're created by him and for him. Our stories don't start with us, it starts with God. And we will never find our identity or the purpose for our lives until we wrestle this thing to the ground. The Bible teaches that we're created to bring him pleasure. Listen to this from Revelation 4.11. says this, You created everything, it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. We were created for his good pleasure, for his enjoyment, to bring a smile to his face. Throughout both the Old and New Testament, worship is clearly the most important thing that God's people can do. It's their first and ultimate calling, right? Abel knew this as far back as Genesis chapter 4 when he brought uh, the firstborn lambs of his flock and, and offered them in worship to God. Later, God instructs Moses to ask Pharaoh to let his people go. For what purpose? So that they can worship. Not surprisingly, the first commandment that God gives to his children of Israel is dealt with worship. You shall have no other gods before me. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In the New Testament, Jesus praised Mary, uh, Mary's worship over Martha's busy preparation. We talked about this uh, uh, last month, right? He says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Only one thing is needed. The one thing he's referring to is worship, right? Sitting at Jesus' feet. At another point, Jesus defended a woman uh, who, out of adoration and thanks and, and worship, pre, uh, poured out precious oil on him. And the disciples gave him crap about it, right? He says, are you kidding me? She's done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a beautiful thing. When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, what did he say? Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus knew and taught, as does all of Scripture, that God desires our worship above anything else. It should be the number one thing on each of our agendas. Worship is not just important for us as individual children of God, but it's also the ultimate purpose for all of us as the church. The church in Acts uh, says this. Uh, this is crazy. It's from Acts 2. But... Uh, it describes a picture where people were devoted to worshiping God together. They were devoted to the teachings, right, of Jesus and the teachings that were passed down through the apostles. They were devoted to breaking bread together, 
communion, right? Celebrating communion. They were, it says they met together in each other's homes daily and they worshiped God. They praised God with glad and sincere hearts. It was first and foremost. First Peter 2.9 says this. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The church's main function, friends, is worship. It's not a sideshow. It's not something that you fill in at the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of a church service and just kind of filler until you get to the message. It's nothing like that. It's the purpose of our creation. It's fundamental to who we are. One of the early, earlier catechisms says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Throughout the Bible, throughout church history, throughout all of human history, it has been universally understood and taught that we are created for one purpose. Our identity as Christ followers and as the church is based on that of us being worshipers. We're created to worship, created to bring God glory, to bring him pleasure. That's sort of the essence of it. Anytime we respond to God, anytime you or I respond to God in a way that brings him pleasure, that's worship. It's more than just singing songs. It's more than just attending a service. Worship isn't someplace you go. It's a response. It's a surrender. It's a, it's a lifting up of who God is. It's not about you or me or our preferences. It's about God. It's about who he is and what he's done in our lives. It's about responding to him. Let me give you some examples. When you hear his word, when you, when you know his truth and you respond in obedience, that's worship. It's pleasing to God. When we have a moment when we are just awed by something beautiful, right? By a sunset or a child's giggle or, uh, or waves lapping up on a beach or something. And in our own hearts, we say, God, you are awesome. I can't believe you made this. That's worship. When you're going through your day and there's a moment where you just have this nudge from the Holy Spirit that you need to serve somebody or love somebody or give to somebody or whatever, and you do it, brings a smile to God's face. It's worship. And certainly, and we understand this part, right? But certainly when you come on Sunday morning and we, we raise our hands and we proclaim God's greatness and his goodness and his grace and his vastness and we sing about the great I am in our hearts, right? That can be worship. When we bow our heads in prayer and we thank God for who he is and what he's done in our lives, that's worship. Even when we open up our hands and surrender or we lift, raise our hands to proclaim his goodness, it's worship. It's not just something that happens on Sunday mornings, though. It's something that happens throughout the days. The, that kind of heart and that kind of spirit of the one leper that comes back is how we're meant to live all the time. Day, day in and day out. Every moment throughout our days. Erwin Lutzer, he's a pastor and author, he says this, if you haven't learned to be worshipers, it doesn't really matter how well we do anything else. You know why? It's because it's what we're made for. If we don't really get that our lives are not just about me, if we don't really understand that we're created for a purpose, and that purpose is to worship and honor and glorify God, if we miss that, then we will never really live in or live out our true identity. We'll never really experience the life that we're created for. We'll miss out on the purpose for which we're made. We're created to worship. It's the foundation of our identity in Christ. We exist for his pleasure. 
And so Jesus tells us to be like the leper that comes back, the one leper that turns back. We're told that we need to develop grateful and worshipful hearts, hearts that receive everything as a gift and praise God as the giver. I mean, you could just imagine the excitement that this one leper must have had as he walks or maybe even runs back to Jesus, falls down at his feet, puts his arms around him and just starts thanking and praising him over and over and over. He can hardly stop because he's just so overwhelmed, so indebted to Jesus, so thankful, so filled with joy. If we're honest, again, I'm just going to come back to that question. Which of the two would you say you're more like this morning? Would you say you're more like the one leper whose heart was just overflowing with gratitude, with thankfulness, who was quick to run back to Jesus and give him praise because of what he'd done in his life? Is that your heart, if you're honest? Or if we're being honest here, would you say that you're a little bit more like the other nine, maybe, that don't come back? And I'm not talking about a once-a-month thing or a once-a-year thing, kind of a, a, prayer, a prayer that we say at Thanksgiving before we stuff ourselves with turkey or something. I'm, I'm asking, have you developed a heart that's grateful, that truly worships regularly, daily, even moment by moment, for what God has done in your life? Are you taking time regularly to individually or even as a family to gather together and to give God thanks and praise and worship that he deserves? Friends, we need to for our own good, for our own hearts, but more importantly, God deserves our thanks and our praise. He's worthy. Every breath that you take is a gift. Every day when you open your eyes, it's a gift given to you by the creator of the universe. Those of us that have put our trust in Christ and come into a relationship with him, how much do you have to be thankful for? How much do we have to be thankful for? He's forgiven you. He's adopted you into his family. He's promised you eternal life with him forever. He's shown you and poured out for you his unconditional love. He sent his spirit to live inside of you and empower you for life and given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's given you the body, other believers to share life. He's given you and me everything. How can we not turn back? How can we not respond by falling down at his feet, wrapping our arms around him and just saying, God, we love you. We are so thankful. You're so good to me. I wonder this week, as we kind of talk about and just are starting here with this, this piece of our identity is founded fundamentally as people who bring God glory, fundamentally as people that are worshipers of God. I wonder if this week you and I need to start putting that into practice a little bit more. Maybe uh, first thing in the morning when you wake up, before you grab your phone and, and turn to social media and start being reminded of everything that's wrong in the world, <laughs> which it happens, doesn't it? Before you find out what Trump said again or whatever, you know, whatever, before you get on to that kind of stuff, I wonder if, if maybe the first thing as you're opening your eyes in the morning and maybe the last thing as you're closing your eyes at night, if you just turn, if you and I would just turn our eyes Godward, and we would just spend some time praising God for who he is and for his goodness to us, for what he's done in our lives. Imagine what that starts cultivating in our own hearts, in our own souls. Instead of being freaked out with our phones, with everything that's going on, man, all of a sudden we, are, we can sense God's smile. We can sense his presence and his peace on us. It's the good stuff. Or maybe you're good at already doing that kind of thing, and maybe... 
maybe God's just prompting you saying, what about the rest of the day? <laughs> if, if you're in the habit of already praying and kind of worshiping God like that, what about going through the rest of your day? What if, what if you start cultivating and just reminding, I, I think I've mentioned before, at our last church, we did this thing called the 60-60 challenge uh, at one point where we, we'd set alarms on our phones uh, every hour on the hour. And when it went off, you're just supposed to pray no matter what was happening in your day. Just like, yes, we understand that you can't actually always, you know, at work or whatever else, you know, bow down and do the thing. But it was just a reminder to turn your eyes Godward. And if you're, you know, serving somebody or you're interacting with somebody, just pray for the conversation. Just thank God for what he's doing. Just make yourself aware and kind of plugged in with the flow of the Spirit in that moment. Maybe that's something you do just sort of throughout your day just to kind of help train us and remind us to not be like nine that walk away, just get too busy and just ignore God, but to but to be like the one that comes back and says, God, we need you. We love you. We're yours. We're all in. I want my life in my day. I want this meeting or this time or this interaction. I want it to bring you glory. I want it to bring a smile to your face. Maybe there's something, uh, truth be told, in an area that, that uh, you're kind of holding back from God. And, and maybe for you this week, God's just saying, man, would you just take that area or just all of your life really and just surrender it. Say, I want to live my life in a way that brings you honor and in a way that brings you glory. I am all in. I'm yours. Forgive me for the ways I've screwed up and gone my own way. I don't want my life to be about me and just the whims. I want to step into this new identity, this new creation as a worshiper, as one who lives for you and your glory. Friends, I don't know how it is that, that God's prompting you today, but I know this needs to be lived out in our lives. We will struggle with purposelessness. We will struggle with emptiness until we grab onto this whole identity and recognize we are made for more. We are made to reflect and know and worship and tell others and celebrate the God who made us, who saved us, who's rescued us, who's poured out his love. Let's respond this week and step into that identity as worshipers. Let's close in prayer. Father, that's our cry this morning. Forgive us for so easily being distracted and, and uh, I don't know, just swept away by other stuff that we become like the, the nine, God, who just sort of never take the time to turn back to you. And Lord, for us as individuals, for us as a church, I pray that we would become people that we have a trajectory that more and more and more we are just turning towards you throughout every moment of the day, every, the first thing when we open our eyes and the last thing uh, at night before we close them, that we would be people who worship, people who turn our eyes and our hearts and our attention to you. God, may we see and know you more, may how, and then may we respond in ways that bring you pleasure, that bring a smile to your face whether that be thanksgiving and praise, whether that be surrender and obedience, whether that be uh, just dropping at your feet and just sitting in your presence, whatever, God. Teach us to live our lives as worshipers. In all these things, God, may you be honored. May you be praised. May it bring a smile to your face. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.